But my friend from high school was visiting my dorm, and I walked into my dorm and saw him sitting on my couch. And I was taken, I'm taken aback, like, hello, who are you? And this was back at the end of freshman year, and the very first conversation we had was ironically about Bitcoin and blockchain, since I was interested in at that period of time. Welcome to The Founder's Couch, a show about Stanford student founders and their intrepid journeys of starting their own thing. I'm Catherine Jane, and I'm excited to bring on our very first guest of the show, my friend and blockchain entrepreneur, Albert Chan. Albert and I met around two years ago in TAPS 103, where we played and played and learned the art of improvising. Albert is a computer science senior here at Stanford and founder of Injective Labs, Injective Labs is building the first fully decentralized exchange protocol that eliminates front-running and allows for trustless liquidity sharing. And now, without further ado, I'm excited to introduce Albert Chan to the couch. All right, Albert, thanks so much for uh, joining me on the couch today. Uh, thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kathleen. So I'm just going to start off by... Um, asking for the people in the room who might not have a good understanding of what Bitcoin and blockchain is all about, if you could just explain to me what those terms mean in the most layman terms as possible. Sure. So Bitcoin was developed in 2009 by an anonymous person called Satoshi Nakamoto, and he proposed this new way to uh, have basically internet cash, e-cash, um, in a way that did not rely on any centralized party. So unlike, you know, the U.S. dollar, which is uh, issued by the Federal Reserve, this Internet money, Bitcoin, would be um, issued or created by a decentralized network of miners um, who would basically, in a way, create currency and allow people to transact in a trustless form. Right, I don't think that was really... No, 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 <laughs> and how is, like, blockchain and Bitcoin related? How are the two intertwined? Yeah, so Bitcoin is kind of, it was the very first application of the underlying blockchain technology. And the blockchain technology is, it refers to the underlying data structure, which these uh, transactions or data about you know, who's and who money are stored. Mm -hmm. And it's using a um, chain of blocks, using hash pointers. And that's where that, that term comes from. Got it, got it. So you knew you were going to sort of focus on this field of, you know, blockchain and Bitcoin. How did you even get into this idea? Yeah, I, I think I was first exposed to it in eighth grade when my friend showed me how to like mine Bitcoin on my computer. Okay. And after that, I kind of explored online, like the dark web, like Silk Road and all that, and saw that you could buy anything using, using Bitcoin. So that was back in like high school. And since then, I've, I was always interested in you know, what, what is the space? It's, it's so new. And I think it was only until I came to Stanford when I kind of saw the, the fusion between blockchain and like computer science. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to a few events by the Stanford Bitcoin Club in freshman year. Okay. And that was really when I got a sense of what the potential of blockchain could be. Mm -hmm. So how do you think going to those sort of clubs and events helped you kind of stir up that interest again? Yeah, I... Back then, I, I didn't really understand the, the use cases of blockchain or Bitcoin besides just, you know, as payments, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I went, I specifically remember going to a talk by uh, Tom Ding, who actually um, incubated Protocol Labs, working on Filecoin, etc. 
And he showed me the vision of what's called Web 3.0, when currently Web 2.0, depending on a lot of these big centralized behemoths like Google, Amazon, Facebook for our internet and services. Mm-hmm. But in Web 3.0, um, this could be all done potentially in a, a decentralized fashion, where instead of having to trust Uber for you know, providing you ride services, mm-hmm. people could join a decentralized Uber and there would be no middleman cut, for example. Oh, I see. Okay, so you knew you had this interest in this field, um, and then you met your co-founder. How did that work? Yeah, um, I met my co-founder, actually. My friend from high school was, was visiting my dorm, and I walked into my dorm and saw him sitting on my couch, and I was taken, taken aback, like, hello, who are you? And this was back at the end of freshman year, and the very first conversation we had was, ironically, about Bitcoin and blockchain, since I was interested at that period of time. Mm-hmm. And um, since then, we... We were always kind of trading crypto, um, just talking about crypto and projects. And this past summer, when I was interning in New York City, um, we met him uh, again and kind of spent every day working on, on our company together. Mm. Yeah. So the sort of idea that you had was kind of developed after you had met your co-founder? Yeah, around two years after. Okay, actually. Yeah. got it. So what was that like sort of balancing, um, you know, full-time work in New York City uh, and also, you know, you have this new genius idea that you really want to work on. How do you balance that time? I, I think it's really hard to do two things well. Um, so I kind of half-assed my internship. Uh-huh. <laughs> hopefully Amazon's not hearing this. Yeah. <laughs> and um, would spend the major- a lot of my time, yeah, majority of my time working on crypto projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what were like your first steps? So you had this idea and now you're going to like... Did you like first develop a prototype? Did you do some market research? Like, what were your first steps after having yeah. that? Yeah, so I guess the very first step was my co-founder, Eric, um, came across this new research on verifiable delay functions, which okay. is kind of like the, a core crypto primitive that we use in our protocol. Okay. And that research was released by um, Dan Bonet's lab in June of 2018. So literally, like, right as we were starting our internships, um, Eric came across this paper and came up with the idea to use this in, in our protocol. And throughout the entirety of like July and August, we were working on you know, how to integrate. So we first saw this, this new crypto primitive. And this, the primitive is you can, using a delay function, a function which you know produces a delay, you can, you can verify that, um, for example, when you trade something, a, a big problem is front-running. Um, and that occurs when I, as a trader, submit my trade because the transactions are public on the Ethereum network, mm-hmm. so a, a different adversary could see that, that transaction and submit the exact same trade with higher gas fee. Got it. And d- by doing that, uh, miners would prioritize the higher gas fee trade over the, over my trade. Mm-hmm. And one way to combat, uh, there's certainly no way to combat this, cause since in determining a concept of like a timestamp in a decentralized asynchronous network is a hard problem in, in distributed systems. Mm-hmm. But we found that there was a solution to this using a delay function or a verifiable delay functions, where someone could compute a, a VDF or yeah on top of a a, hat, a trade hash, mm-hmm. and then kind of submit that along with the trade to prove that they've seen that trade before someone else. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the basic idea, called core concept of, of our protocol, mm-hmm. and we just began fleshing out that idea more formally throughout summer. Uh-huh. Sorry if that was really yeah, f- yeah, that was great. <laughs> but, yeah. So when you say like fleshing out your idea, what do you mean? By, by that. Yeah, yeah. So the first thing was to um, write our white paper, okay. which we did, and you know have it reviewed by people who knew like 
cryptography better than us. Mm -hmm. So we actually collaborated um, a bit with some researchers here at Stanford along with NYU. Got it. Okay. And towards the end of summer, around September, uh, we applied to Binance Labs incubation program. Mm -hmm. And so Binance is kind of like Coinbase, but for I also they, they first started in China, mm -hmm. but they're they're kind of um, a very big global exchange, actually the number one exchange by volume, even beating Coinbase. Okay. Yeah. And they were announcing this brand new incubation program where they would give like 500K for 10% of your company. So we applied and then got in the Sunday before uh, fall quarter started. Wow. So I walked That's into so it. Exciting. Oh, crap. <laughs> my, my fall quarter is going to be completely different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned that, okay, you've got this co-founder and you're like fleshing out these ideas in this white paper. Was your co-founder more of like the business side? Because I know you're, you take more on the technical end. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny, actually. Um, so Eric is an NYU Stern student. He also studies CS there. Okay. And, but he was the person who developed the majority of the protocol. And I'm, I'm, I was more familiar with how to implement it. So that's kind of what I've been doing now. But mm -hmm. the majority of the protocol was developed solely by Eric. And how long would you say it took you to first like flesh out that first prototype? Uh, I would say around three months. Yeah. Okay. So you got into this um, new program, right? And you're coming back to school and you're thinking, wow, this quarter is going to look so different because I'm in this, in this program. Did you ever think at that time, oh, maybe, you know, it's my senior year of Stanford. Maybe I should just you know, take a break from this idea. I'll do it after I graduate. Why? Did you think that right now was the perfect time? I know I I just didn't feel the need to to wait. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean I, I definitely did did sense that like my senior year will be less fun, but it was like a, a sacrifice I was willing to make. Right. And so what were like some of the like thought or like pros and cons that you ran through your head during that time? Yeah, so um because our program was based in SF, um I would go back and forth from SF like like all the time. I, I mean, I probably spent at least half the week in SF. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I did feel like one, one thought I kept having in my head was, you know, you can always like work on a company or a startup like later on in mm -hmm. life, but school you can only really do in these fixed like four years. Right. Like, should I be doing this? Mm -hmm. But um, I came to the conclusion that it's, it's, it's worth it if you actually believe in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 100%. Um, and so I know you started out with your, you and your co-founder alone. So that was just a team of two. And how big is the team now? Yeah, so we have around five people. Um, okay. Two researchers from Berkeley and MIT. Okay. And our front-end developer there. Got it. And how did you go about recruiting those people? Was it through your personal network, job postings online? Yeah, they're all close friends, actually. Okay, yeah. got it. And, and how was that conversation like of approaching those people? Were you like, Hey, I've got this really cool idea. Want to join the team? Yeah, yeah. You kind of have to show them your vision about what where you want to take the product. I think um, for any like competent engineer, what motivates them more than like money is is being part of something cool and interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, did you use kind of words to express that, or did you also have like a pitch deck <laughs> and like other sort of media to to really um, support your your, yeah, your I, I guess <laughs> words and not like dance or pitch text. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Got it. And so you mentioned you've got, okay, you yourself, which is at Stanford, you've got your co-founder at NYU, you've got, you know, these people at MIT and Berkeley. So these people are kind of like situated across the nation, right, in that mm -hmm. sense. 
how has it, what are some of the challenges that have come up in terms of working on a team that is so kind of cross-national, if that makes sense? Yeah, so luckily Eric and I are both here in Palo Alto now. Okay. So that, that makes it a lot easier. Right. Um, the two people that are in Berkeley and MIT are just researchers in very like narrow aspects of our protocol. Mm. So it's kind of like hands off. They they explore this, try to find security vulnerabilities in this area, or in, in the case of our Berkeley guy, um, try to develop this VDF ASIC, which is kind of a very long time, long term endeavor, which we have no expertise in. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been more hands off. Yeah, mm-hmm. got it. Um, and so you mentioned that these um, people at Berkeley and MIT, these researchers, were kind of in your personal network already. How did you make? How did you even? you know, be acquainted with them in the first place? Um, so there were either, so one was my roommate at Stanford for, in spring quarter. Okay. And other one I, I've known since eighth grade, went to the same high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, so just happened to have the same interests as you. Yeah. yeah. Actually, it, it's kind of funny. It goes back full circle. The friend who showed me how to mine Bitcoin in eighth grade was actually the researcher at Berkeley. Really? So oh, it, it really, yeah, I just realized. Wow. <laughs> that's awesome. So you mentioned that at the beginning, before you, it was just the two of you, you reached out to some professors at Stanford and at NYU to get like their, some of their expertise. Yeah. Um, what other resources on campus did you tap into during that time? Did you like find a mentor? Were there like campus accelerators that you were looking into joining? Yeah, I think um, there's one professor that I, I had, his name's Nicholas Kokalis, okay. and he actually taught a like designing blockchain uh, dApps um, in the spring quarter of 2018. And I took that class, like like really made the most of it. And throughout summer, I would I was working on not only this crypto project but a bunch a few others. Okay. And I would I would always you know get his feedback, get his advice on what he thought. And he was just uh, it's such like such an invaluable resource throughout all of it. Uh-huh. So actually, I'm gonna jump to that. You said that you were working on multiple crypto projects at the same time. So one yeah. of them was. Um, related to the idea that you would build out. Yeah. So one of them, one of them was this one. And then others were just side projects. That yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so now I'm gonna like sort of shift the conversation over to funding now. So I kind of focused okay. on like ideation and things yeah. like that. Um. So when during this entire process did you think, okay, now I need some funding? So it's funny we didn't actually think that <laughs> we, we just we just saw the Binance Labs incubation program. Okay. Since at first it was still kind of like a side project idea, um, but we applied and got in and kind of got thrusted into like okay this is a real thing now. Right. So Eric was actually planning on taking the entire year off to work on this, but I I was still um you know planning on going to school taking classes, mm-hmm. um and for me like it that really changed when. When, when, when we did get that funding. Right, got it. Okay. And um, have you, like, currently at this point been, like, looking for other VCs to fund your project? And how has that process been of approaching those people? Yeah, um, so we've realized that we will need more than the initial 500K to actually make this a reality. Right. So we have been talking to several VCs um, mm-hmm. during the past. And so we, we've just started fundraising, actually. Got it. So it's, it's been interesting, yeah. And have you been approaching more like generalist VCs or more VCs that are kind of really specifically focusing on blockchain and Bitcoin? Yeah, um, we've been meeting mainly crypto VCs okay. since uh, general VCs just will not understand what we are doing. Right. Yeah. Right. And so let's just say, you know, a week from now, you've got 
a VC call that's coming up. What kind of things do you do to sort of prepare yourself for a phone call like that? I think you have to really research the background of the VC and and the fund. Um, mm-hmm. And this is something I learned through just being a part of Stardex. Um, right. You have to understand who, who you are dealing with, if they're technical, non-technical, if they're junior, if they're senior, right. um, how big their fund is. Is it maybe like a $250 million fund? Are they a $4 billion fund? Mm-hmm. Um, because this all matters in, in terms of many minute, small details, like how much ownership you give up, right. um, if, would they want a board seat? Would they want to lead? Like, right. there's many considerations to do to make sure that you present yourself in the best way um, and your company in the best way. In the mm-hmm. Do you think there are any differences between how VCs approach student entrepreneurs versus non-student entrepreneurs? I, w- I would, I would suppose so. I, I guess I don't know since I haven't <laughs> been the, the latter. Right. But um, yeah. I mean, this is our first endeavor. Um, I can. VCs for them is probably a higher risk, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, opportunity. So you said okay. So you went through the incubator program that gave you five hundred k. How much of that, like, how did you sort of like use that five hundred k, and how are you planning on using it? Yeah. So so far, we've just been using it to you know hire our, our developers right. and okay. you know just for maintenance infrastructure costs, mm-hmm. and in the future. Um, I don't know if I should discuss our legal strategy on this podcast, <laughs> yeah. but there are there are a, a lot of other okay. um, expenses that we'll, we'll need to do, including development, audits, um, right. our, our legal strategy, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. So, okay, now I'm going to kind of talk about, um, shift gears from, you know, talking about like the startup itself and the funding, and now like talking about the balance of, you know, all of these things um, that you're sort of juggling right now. So... What is your typical weekday look like at Stanford? Let's just say like a typical um, Monday. Yeah. Um, so interesting because I last week I withdrew from two classes so I could <laughs> spend more time on this. Uh-huh. How many units is that now? So I'm at 12 now. Okay. I, I was at 19. Got it. Um, oh, 19 is a lot. Wow. Yeah. So. I guess it, it really depends. I think usually I, I'll wake up in the morning or late afternoon or no, late in the morning, <laughs> um, do a bit of work, eat lunch with my friends at Xanadu, mm-hmm. and then either go to class or stay stay home and work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I probably have like like one one VC call or VC meeting or a, a talking with someone else in the industry who we can potentially partner with. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, eating dinner and just working. I don't know. It's it's not that interesting of a life. <laughs> yeah. No, it sounds great. So now that we've kind of focused on your startup and the balance of sort of maintaining that as a student, we're going to like sort of shift the conversation over to just discussing Bitcoin and blockchain in general. Okay, yes. Um, so I'm wondering, I know this is something that's really exciting to you. Um, where do you think the industry is headed? I, I think that um, we're moving towards more of the, the vision of the web 3.0, as I mentioned, having all of our internet service, or not all, but many of our internet services, you know, provided in a decentralized fashion. Mm-hmm. And right now, I think we're, we're at the stage where we're building the core infrastructure for that. So it'll take a, a few years to, for, for the infrastructure to be there, for the people to actually build on top of this. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, um, that's kind of one reason why people are kind of losing hype 
because they realize it's not going to be like instant, you know, transformation, instant revolution. Right. But I think the, the building blocks to, to, to get there are, are, are being built. I think um, on, a, on a separate note, from a more legal regulatory standpoint, um, governments are kind of beginning to figure out uh, how to deal with Bitcoin. Do we, do we classify um, tokens, for example, as securities, mm-hmm. as not mm-hmm. what, 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 what does, what doesn't? And I think that will also be a very important aspect in making sure big, uh, crypto as uh, an industry um, is able to be widely used. Because people won't have confidence in, let's say, buying security tokens if they're not recognized as securities mm-hmm. or if they have no mm-hmm. legal protection. I know there's some uh, skeptics in the room who, who might say, oh, like, you know, Bitcoin, it's not secure, it's not stable, um, people should invest in it. Um, what is your response to that? Yeah, I, well, I'm not going to make any investment, uh, I'm not going to give any investment advice, but right. I think that Bitcoin is, you know, the first example of cryptocurrency. And of course, in any new and emerging market, there's going to be a lot of inefficiencies and volatility. Mm-hmm. And that if you're willing to accept it, then, then you should you should invest in it. Or you should, you know, if you don't want to accept that, you should you should not. And I think, but the problem is that there, the space has been like flooded with speculators um, and not like builders. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a bit toxic. There were a lot of scams in right. Like 2017, 2018, mm-hmm. but that kind of that's that's been dying down, and we're moving towards a more like meritocratic system. Mm, that's great. So yeah, like we mentioned, right? Basically, that in 2017, 2018, there's this huge hype around it, right? Yeah. Why? What do you think caused that hype? Like, why? Why then? Yeah, I, I think my hypothesis is that their knowledge of you know blockchain crypto kind of gained critical mass, mm-hmm. and few people saw that. Let, let's say you buy Bitcoin at like ten cents. Now it's like at hundred bucks. Like you have some some generation that made you know like hundred thousand x, right? And as as more people hear about that, more more as it happens to more people, more people FOMO in, mm. and a lot of people are like sheep, so they just follow and they don't know anything about the technical side, and right. they, they they hear things like oh this is the new financial revolution, so they yeah it, they just fall for scam. So do you yeah. think that sort of hype is going to, that like overhype is going to happen again? Or do you feel like the industry has sort of reached the point where it's like more like calm and more stable? Um, maybe not in the crypto industry, but I definitely think human nature doesn't change and that it will happen. Like just like the South Seas bubble or, you know, the dot-com bubble, mm-hmm. the crypto bubble happened. Right. Right. Uh, and I, I don't think the bu- like the same bubbles happened twice. Mm-hmm. So hopefully next time we can all catch the next bubble right. <laughs> by an early cash out. Yeah, exactly. But- <laughs> 100%. Okay, so now I'm going to move on from those questions mm-hmm. and move on to the lightning round where I'm basically just going to, you know, fire at you a, a, a quick round of questions. Are you ready? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, so favorite slash most useful class at Stanford that you've taken? Definitely for me, the most useful class was CS359B. And I think it was only offered last year, last spring. And that kind of gave me the foundation to begin doing blockchain development. And what was that class on specifically? Uh, it was designing decentralized applications on the blockchain. Yeah. So did you find more of the um, the uh, homework assignments or more of the lectures more interesting? Then? I well, it was mainly like your your final project based, and I I just put in a lot of time into that final project and learned a lot. Got it. Made the most of it. Got it. Yeah. 
Okay, favorite professor at Stanford? So I think it would, I would have to say the teacher of that class, which okay. is Nicholas Kakalis. Okay. And what about the most impactful summer internship? I think um, sophomore year, I interned at a startup called Link in Sunnyvale and worked in like a less than 15 person engineering team. And that really gave me a lot of like engineering chops of like how to start things from scratch and build mm-hmm. things up. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot that summer, much more than I did at Amazon, for example. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. interesting. If you could give one piece of advice to aspiring student founders who would want to start something but might not, you know, be able to, what one piece of advice would you give? I think that you first have to, you know, find a real problem worth solving. And I think that is kind of hard to do as like coastal elite Stanford bubble. Right. right. Um, but there are so many problems in this world that we're completely oblivious to and that people end up spending a lot of time solving, trying to solve problems that don't, do not exist. So I guess, I guess the meta lesson is like kind of stay rational like throughout your entire process. Mm-hmm. Like don't delude yourself. And that's, um, yeah, it's very easy to, I, yeah. I, I found, but just being rational and really thinking things through. Those are great points. And uh, lastly, where do you see your startup going and what are the next steps for Albert Chan and Injective Labs? Yeah, I think the overall vision is to help allow for um, a more efficient allocation of capital um, and resources throughout the world. And it's a lofty vision, but we, we really do believe in Zero X's mantra of you know, create a tokenized world where all value can flow freely. And the, the idea is that more things in the world, like let's say, um, a small company in Taiwan like wants outside funding, so they they create tokenized shares of their company, and now not just Taiwanese investors, but investors all over the world can can invest in that company. Mm. So we're kind of providing the the protocol to allow people to you know list their company and and trade like these shares in a fully de- decentralized fashion. And you know previously in the world there would be way too many fees to do this, like a, a small like small farmer in Africa can now, you know, buy buy these shares, buy one individual share. Mm. Whereas in the past this would you know, just the end the barrier to entry would have been so high. Right. So our goal is to build this like exchange um, that allows people to do this in a fully trustless and decentralized fashion. Got it. Yeah. Awesome. Well thank you so much Albert for joining me on the couch today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay. Thanks so much Catherine. Such a joy to have Albert on the show. I can't wait to see where Albert and Injective Labs are headed. If you'd like to check out Injective Labs' website, go to injectiveprotocol.com. Thanks so much for listening to this first episode. You can write to me at cjang98 at stanford.edu for thoughts on the show and suggestions of guests and questions. I'm Catherine Jang. And you've been listening to The Founder's Couch. See you next time.